morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, March 25th, and this is your FT News Briefing. We'll start the show in Brussels, where world leaders have gathered for a whirlwind diplomatic effort focused on Ukraine. And we'll talk with Katie Martin about Russia's financial markets, which reopened this week. I guess this is a bit of a move on the Russian side to give the impression that, you know, we're back in business. Plus, we'll have the latest development in the ongoing corporate saga that is Toshiba. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Leaders of the G7, NATO, and EU gathered in Brussels to try and come up with ways to help Ukraine. They're also trying to address the economic fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Here's the FT's Andy Bounds with some of the key agreements. The main one from the G7 meeting was sanctions on gold. So Russia is trying to avoid, it's obviously been cut off from a lot of SWIFT transactions, a lot of dollar transactions. So apparently it's been trying to sell its foreign reserves of gold in order to uh, you know, generate currency. And therefore, they've taken action to try and stop that. And then secondly, a big issue for the EU is it's very reliant on Russian gas. And obviously, that sends lots of money to Russia, which they can use to fulfill their, their war aims. So the US is going to step up and announce that it's going to provide or try to provide some more liquefied natural gas to the EU in order to um, mean they don't have to buy as much from Russia It's a small dent, really, and they are looking to other countries as well to do more. But I think it was important for the US to show that it's trying to help the EU to wean itself off Russian gas. Andy, how significant do you think these meetings are? How often have all three major groups come together? I think it's very, very rare. I I haven't seen this happen before. What we've seen is a lot of Western unity. And of course, we have to include Japan as well when it comes to the G7. And I think President Biden and the EU and Japan and Canada, they're all very keen to be seen as united and taking similar sanctions at similar times to deal with the Russian aggression. Uh, I think they think that's very important that Vladimir Putin realizes he can't pick off uh, one country against another and try and exploit differences. I mean, the one the one consistent guest, actually, at all three meetings has been, apart from President Biden, has been Vladimir Zelensky, the, uh, the Ukrainian president, who has spoken at each one via video link from Kiev. Andy Bounds is the FT's EU correspondent. Yesterday, Russia's stock exchange partially reopened after trading was suspended for three weeks. The White House called the move a charade and a Potemkin market reopening. I'm joined by our markets editor, Katie Martin, to find out more. Hi, Katie. Hey, how are you doing? So, Katie, what did the White House mean by calling it a Potemkin market reopening? Yeah, it's quite a cute label that they put on it there. So basically, the the timing... It's probably not coincidental. So the day of the market reopening was the same day that NATO officials were meeting with EU officials and with President Biden and all who are all kind of getting together to talk about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. And so I guess this is a bit of a move on the Russian side to give the impression that, you know, we're back in business. But it wasn't really a normal market session, put it that way. And what made it so abnormal? So it was just open for a few hours is one thing. And it's only 33 of the 50 stocks that are in the the index that were were tradable. And that includes some really big names like Gazprom, Sparebank, Rosneft, VTB Bank and all the rest of them. But it was pretty volatile and not particularly normal session. So the stocks 
jumped 12% when they first opened, but they ended up in the day just about 4% higher. And it's worth bearing in mind that they're still down by a fifth since the invasion started. And there's still loads of restrictions, right? So there's no no short selling. And also foreign investors can't get out yet. And when they can in, in April is the plan, then the money still has to stay in Russia if they get out of Russian stocks. Katie, what kind of Western investors are we talking about here? So all the kind of global investors, sort of pension fund managers and, you know, all the usual suspects, there's been a huge rethink around Russia. And there is a debate, you know, is the best thing to do to sell shares and effectively free them up for Russian oligarchs to buy cheaply and hold for the long term? You know, there are some real ethical dilemmas around what to do with existing Russian holdings. But it's very clear that certainly no investors that I speak to are going to be looking to rebuild a position in in Russian markets, in, in Russian stocks anytime soon. At the same time, we're also seeing hedge funds bargain hunting for corporate bonds in Russia and also Ukraine. Can you tell us more about what's going on with that? So Russian debt really got taken to the woodshed when the invasion started. And so there are some hedge funds out there, classic hedge fund names like Silverpoint, Golden Tree. There's a clutch of them that are saying, if I can buy Russian corporate or government debt incredibly cheaply, maybe they buy it at 10 cents on the dollar or, you know, 10 kopecks on the ruble. At some point in the future, I will still be made whole. And if you're prepared to play the really long game and hold this stuff to maturity, then it's possible that you might not get 100 cents on the dollar when the principles return to you, but you might at least be able to get something more than you paid for. But you you have to be prepared to sit on this paper right through to maturity and potentially to get lawyers involved to actually extract the money when it's all done and dusted. And is this the same thinking for people investing in Ukrainian bonds? Yeah, there's there's a little of that too. Now, for Ukraine, a lot of it comes down to, you know, really bluntly, what will Ukraine be after this? Will it still have the same territory that it started out with when the conflict began? And that's a really tricky one. You know, if Russia succeeds in keeping its hands on parts of the country, then it might be a little bit more difficult for Ukraine to pay back its government debt. But it's going to have difficulty enough with that anyway. And there is a reasonable school of thought that whatever happens to Ukraine after this conflict, it's going to be a country that's heavily supported by the IMF and by the international community. So again, if you're prepared to play the really long game and run the risk of just getting completely wiped out on your investment, but you can kind of hope for a big upswing if it all works out, then for some hedge funds, that's an attractive possibility. But again, you have to be the sort of investor that's prepared to stick it out, prepared to take a big risk and be prepared, if necessary, to get the lawyers in to get your money out at the end. Before I let you go, Katie, I want to ask you about what's going on in the US Treasury market. It's been the worst month for Treasury since 2016. So what's happening? (laughs) Everybody hates US Treasuries at the moment. This pendulum has swung a few times this year, but certainly the the groundswell of opinion now is, okay, we have to face up to the fact that the US Federal Reserve is going to be raising rates. It is not going to stop 
And that has to be bad news for US government bond prices. It has to push yields higher. And in addition, there is this problem with inflation that's just not going away. And that eats away at the regular returns that debt products offer. So what we're starting to see now is even some of the commentators on the bond market and some of the investors in the bond market who stick with treasuries no matter what, even they are saying, okay, fair enough. We're going to have to accept that the year is going to end up much weaker than it started. So as you say, it's been a pretty nasty start to the year and that looks really set to continue. Katie Martin is the FT's markets editor. Thanks, Katie. Pleasure. One of Japan's most famous corporations, Toshiba, has been in turmoil for years. The most recent attempt to fix it was a management proposal to split the conglomerate in two. Yesterday, shareholders voted on that plan, and they nixed it. Here's our Asia business editor, Leo Lewis. It was a surprise, certainly, to some of the activist funds that we spoke to the night before, because they really did think that the shareholder proposal would pass even if the management's proposal wasn't voted down. Investors not only voted down management's plan, they also rejected a proposal by a top shareholder, a Singapore fund, that could have led to the company going private. Leo says there are two ways to look at the two failed proposals. You can be very kind of pessimistic, uh, and I think that the lead up to this demonstrated very clearly that there are quite significant divisions within Toshiba's management. We know that there are significant divisions on the board. And so, you know, when you see a company with three distinct lines of division, uh, you think, well, gosh, you know, is anything going to unlock this? This could be going on for years that the management will propose something that the shareholders don't like. They'll vote it down. Uh, we'll go on to the next thing and it won't happen until, you know, everyone's happy and that may be never. I think there is also an optimistic reading that this actually hands a kind of unspoken mandate to the new CEO to sort this out. And we can live in hope that uh, actually you know, this new CEO, who is very well regarded, does come up with something that unlocks this kind of logjam that we're in. That's the FT's Asia business editor, Leo Lewis. And I'm Joanna Gao. I've been filling in for Mark Filipino this week. Mark will be back on Monday. But if you can't wait to hear his voice, he'll be on Twitter Spaces today, hosting a discussion on Putin's inner circles. And we've got a pretty amazing lineup of people, including Professor Anatol Levin. He wrote the story about the people closest to the Russian president that many of you have been reading and talking about. Also, you'll hear from the FT's Polina Ivanova and Henry Foy, Jillian Tett and Courtney Weaver. That's on Twitter Spaces today at noon Eastern time and 4 p.m. GMT. We've put the link in our show notes. The FT News Briefing is produced by Fiona Simon and Mark Filipino. Our editor is Jess Smith. We had help this week from George Drake Jr., David DeSilva, Peter Barber, and Gavin Coleman. Our executive producer is Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio, and our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. 
Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.